Welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC on ESPN 49, Home versus Bueno Silva, also known as UFC Vegas 77. I am your host, Ben Duffy, SureDog.com senior editor. And if you are watching this on YouTube, as opposed to listening on the podcast platform of your choice, you can see already that I am flying solo today. Keith Schillen, my usual uh, partner on these uh, broadcasts, is still on vacation. He will be back this coming week, and I could have grabbed a co-pilot, but frankly, eh, given the card, I thought it might be more fun just to tackle this one on my own. So let's dive right in. I want to talk a little about the card in general, and then obviously we will talk about all 14 of these fights in as much detail as uh, all of us can stand. This card was supposed to be headlined by a welterweight matchup between Vicente Luque and Rafael Dos Anjos. That fight fell off. We uh, now have Holm versus Bueno Silva at Bantamweight as our top fight. Obviously, not as sexy as any fight involving Luque, one of the welterweight division's most established action stars. But in terms of divisional relevance, uh, the question you are used to hearing me ask Keith on fight night previews in particular is who on this card is closest to a title shot off of a win? Well, even with Luque versus Dos Anjos on the card, the winner of that fight might not have been the closest to a title shot. So uh, it loses some divisional relevance, but you know, not too much. And the card uh, soldiers on as it is giving this card a letter grade on paper out of the gate before it happens. I'm looking at a D minus here, and it's probably as close as I've come to giving a card a flat out F in the two years plus that I've been doing these previews for sure dog. And since I'm going solo today, I thought it was worth taking a few minutes to go into more detail about what I mean by that. If you're a regular listener or viewer of these shows, if you hear me give a card a D or a D plus or a D minus or something, depending on your own take on the UFC and on uh, our product here on the Shillin and Duffy show, you're either going, oh, here goes negative Ben again, crapping on fights that we get to watch for free. Or you may be saying, all right, a D, they're going to style on this card and, and make fun of it all, all up and down. I, I don't know which it is in your particular case, but. I think it's worth discussing what I and what I think Keith would probably agree with me, what we're thinking of when we're talking about giving letter grades to these cards. Uh, what do we want in one of these cards? And obviously, we need to separate pay-per-views from free fight night cards. If I'm talking about a pay-per-view, if you're asking for $80 of my money and six or eight hours of my time, I want the best. I want title fights, maybe more than one of them. I want contenders. If you're going to give me any prospects, especially on the main card, those prospects better be the best of the best. I, I want Bo Nickel. I want Sean O'Malley. I want Shavkat Rachmanov. It should be the creme de la creme. If there's going to be unranked stuff on the undercard, at least give me likely action fights. I, I don't think it's too much, again, to ask for the UFC to roll out its very best if it's asking for that much of our money and time. Expectations change greatly if we're talking about a free fight night. It's nice to have some divisional relevance at the top. How close are any of these people to a title shot? It matters. 
the divisional relevance matters. If all I wanted was to watch exciting fights and I didn't really care whether they were the best fighters in the world or not, I'd go to World Star Hip Hop. 95% of the fights and then a knockout. None of them are the best fighters in the world. Who gives a shit? If I'm watching a promotion that purports to be the world's top MMA organization, and of course I agree that it is, I don't think it should be too much of a stretch to ask to see some of the best fighters in the world. I want, generally speaking, to see lighter weight fights. They're just more exciting most of the time. I, I know the UFC has this ingrained idea that everybody, especially casuals, just wants to check out the heavyweights, but I don't think that's true. And I'm not even sure it was true in 2002 or 2004 when they first started thinking it. Generally speaking, I, I want to see as much of a card as possible. If we're talking about a free card and talking about unranked fighters, I want men at 170 pounds or less and women's strawweights. As much of that as possible is probably going to make at least for lively viewing. I'd like to see at least some decent prospects and not too much garbage. I hesitate to call fights garbage because people conflate that with me calling the, the participants garbage. That, of course, is not the case. I have mad respect for anybody that uh, puts on the gloves and gets in a cage and bleeds for my entertainment. But just I, I, look at this. Seven fight undercard of UFC on ESPN 49. There is a solid case to be made that the losers of all seven of those fights will be cut from the UFC. If there's a card with maybe a dozen fighters on it that still haven't even proven that they belong in the UFC, or in some cases on this card, probably already aren't, and it's just waiting for that one more loss to kind of push them over the edge, that's a tough sell. There's a reason why plenty of people in MMA, myself included, make wise cracks about Dana White's Saturday Night Contender Series, because ever since about 2019, 2020, when the UFC started signing multiple people from every episode of the Contender Series, it started to flood the UFC with people that, in a lot of cases, weren't going to make it, but the UFC had a chance to sign them for cheaper because the uh, Contender Series contract is typically for 10 and 10, whereas the standard contract starts at 12 and 12. So the Contender Series turned into an avenue for the UFC to sign low-cost fighters, and it shows. And <clears throat> undercards, especially of these fight night cards, have turned into a Saturday night Contender Series where people signed from the Tuesday night shows fight out, in some cases, their entire four-fight contender series contract and then are either cut or promoted up to well more normal cards the quote-unquote real ufc that's when they start showing up on pay-per-view undercards or on main cards of free fight nights because they've proven themselves a little bit more uh it's in some cases almost like being asked to watch a regional promotion before a ufc card so when i say that this card is a d minus and about as close to an f as I've ever come to, you know, giving a, a UFC card in the last couple of years. It's for all those reasons. First up on the UFC Vegas 77 prelims is a women's bantamweight matchup between Ashley Evan Smith and Eileen Perez. Evan Smith, the 
Californian who actually turned 36 just yesterday. So happy belated birthday, Ashley. Uh, she is six and five overall. She's three and five in the UFC. She's on a two-fight losing streak. However, she hasn't fought at all since November of 2020. So over two and a half years ago since uh, she's been in the octagon at all. The last time we saw her was all the way back at the UFC on ESPN, uh, Anthony Smith versus Devin Clark card back in November of 2020, where she dropped a unanimous decision to Norma Dumont. Unfortunately for her, last time she made the news was actually when she was caught on camera stealing uh, COVID-19 protective gear off of somebody's doorstep in the middle of the pandemic. Actually, yeah, kind of good that she did that at the time, because regardless of whether you thought COVID-19 was the most serious global health crisis of our generation, or you thought it was some kind of scam or hoax, everybody could agree and get on the same page that stealing protective gear was pretty despicable. So uh, Ashley Evans-Smith uniting us, uh, you know, in, in these troubled times. Evans-Smith will be taking on Perez. The 28-year-old Argentinian is 7-2 overall. She is 0-1 in the UFC. She made her debut last September at UFC Fight Night Gone versus Tuivasa, where she got choked out in the second round by Stephanie Egger. So she's back looking for her first UFC win. Emma Smith clearly looking for some form of redemption in her uh, long-delayed return to the cage. Perez is a slight to moderate favorite to get the win here. She is minus 155. Evan Smith around plus 130. Ashley Evan Smith feels like she should be a better fighter than she has been at the UFC level. Former college wrestler, and especially as a 36-year-old, there's been an exponential increase in the availability of amateur wrestling opportunities for women just say in the 10 years since evan smith was in college so it's still pretty noteworthy when a woman comes to the ufc who uh wrestled in college even now let alone uh you know years ago when evan smith did so you would think that would be a standout skill for her but what it's really translated to against UFC level competition is she's a pretty good wrestler, but not as good as you would expect. And maybe a little better everywhere else than you would expect. She's just kind of a well-rounded fighter. Who's not super great at any one area and has struggled to bring her best strengths to play against her opponent's weaknesses. Uh, and that is all talking about Evan Smith at age 33. Again, she was 33 the last time we saw her just kind of get bullied around by Norma DeMont. She is now 36 and has been away from action for over two years. The matchup between Evan Smith and DeMont back in 2020 is actually somewhat instructive here just because Perez, to me, feels like a bit of a poor woman's version of DeMont. Like Dumont, she presents as a striker. Dumont obviously, you know, calls herself a sound practitioner. It does come from a sound background. Perez presents as a kickboxer, but in reality, once bell rings and the fight starts, both of them want to clinch, want to maul, and if possible, want to wrestle. 
That's just how they're wired, and that's fine. Just Perez isn't quite as good at it as Dumont. He's not quite as big, not quite as strong. Uh, Perez got a tough call in her UFC debut. Again, what Perez did on the regional scene in Samurai Fight House, super low level, what, what she did there just was the worst possible idea against Stephanie Eger because the the book on Eileen Perez is she dashes across the cage, closes distance behind a couple of punches, clinches, tries to throw the other woman down and go to work from there. Stephanie Eger has a clear ceiling in the UFC, but she is a former Swiss judo champion and running right at her heedlessly is just about the worst thing you could possibly do. And that's that's how it played out. Egger flung Perez to the ground and took care of her in short order. Here, frankly, I don't think either of these women are long for the UFC, even by the modest standards of 135, which is a pretty depleted division right now. But if either of these women is is improved from their last appearance, it's almost certainly going to be Perez, who is still just 28 years old, uh, has linked up with a good team in MMA Masters, and she's taking on someone in Smith that, again, I don't know if I thought the UFC had cut Evan Smith or or she had retired or we would just quietly never see her again, but I was surprised to see her get a fight booked, and I have no reason to believe she's going to be better than the version of herself that lost to Andrea Lee and Norma Dumont, both of whom kind of bullied her physically in spite, again, in spite of Evan Smith being a, a former collegiate wrestler. Here, I think the odds are probably about right. Evan Smith could surprise us, but she's never been one with quick strike offense, either on the feet or grappling. So she'd just flat out need to do something to win two straight rounds against, or two rounds out of three against Perez. And it's hard to see her doing that. I actually think that Perez's charge forward and get a body lock and trip type offense might work on Evan Smith. Her defensive wrestling is surprisingly porous for her background. And even if it doesn't work, Perez coming forward and swinging and initiating things is likely to sway the judges unless Evan Smith obviously does a lot more damage in any given round. So my inclination is to say that Eileen Perez wins this by decision, probably wins uh, two rounds or maybe just wins all three with a combination of the takedowns she's looking for and then some busy work on top or just charging forward, running Smith into the fence and kind of going to work from there. Probably won't be the most exciting fight to watch, but uh, I do favor the younger, fresher fighter here, the one who's been busier. Next up at UFC on ESPN 49 is a lightweight matchup between Alex Munoz and Carl Deaton. Munoz, the 33-year-old Texan by way of California, is 6-2 overall. He is 0-2 since joining the UFC uh, as a veteran of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. He won on that season, was not immediately signed because, again, the first two seasons, not everybody who won on uh, the Contender Series was signed. But uh, won one more fight on the regionals, then got signed. 
he lost back-to-back fights to Nazrat Hakparast and Luis Pena across 2020 and 2021 before uh, being away for a little over two years. So second fight in a row here where we have someone coming back after two years away on a two-fight losing streak. But Munoz will attempt to get his UFC career back on track against Deaton. The 33-year-old who goes by the Anishinaabe kid is 17-6 and with two no contests overall. He is 0-1 in the UFC. He made a short-notice debut back in February at UFC Fight Night Muniz versus Allen, where he was tapped out in the second round by Joe Selecki. Odds here... Favor Munoz, he is minus 140 or so, Deaton around plus 120 on the comeback. I'll come right out and say I am not sure why Munoz is is the favorite here. Uh, Even if you thought he showed flashes of potential or flashes of greatness in his fights against uh, Hakparast and Pena, which is arguable, again, it's been two years since then, and he's now 33. It's tough to have confidence that he's even the same fighter he was then, let alone an improved version thereof. Munoz comes from a wrestling background, and early in his career, which, speaking relatively, he he only has eight fights total, but early in his career, he definitely presented as a wrestler. He's kind of moved away from being wrestling-centric, and he's more willing to be a medium-volume striker who comes forward and just it feels weird to say this about a 155 pound fighter but just kind of plotting in his last fight all the way back in april of 2021 he dropped a split decision to luis pena in a pretty fun fight but that's a problem on a couple of levels one because luis pena turned out not to be that great a fighter uh pena bounced from the ufc immediately after that Again, it was due to that domestic violence case about him, which actually was just dismissed uh, earlier this week. But Pena is, as of right now, on a three-fight losing streak in various regional promotions. It's it's not a loss that has aged well. And even at the time, it seemed to be down to Munoz not making adjustments. Uh, it seemed apparent in their fight that Munoz, who had an advantage with his offensive wrestling against Pena's defensive wrestling. Pena is a very underrated offensive wrestler, but as a six foot three lightweight, who's mostly legs defensive wrestling was always going to be a liability, but Munoz never really seemed to steer into that. And Munoz being a low to medium volume striker struggles to put his stamp on rounds and really win them definitively, which is why he got into a pretty fun fight, lost a split decision that I guess it could have gone his way, but it's tough to feel too bad for him about that because he had plenty of opportunities to really make it obvious who was the better fighter and just didn't take them. Uh, Here, he's coming up against a guy in Deaton that to me feels like a pretty limited fighter and one who may not be long for the UFC, but has earned his right to get here and try and does have certain tools. Uh, Deaton's debut was on like a week's notice against Joe Selecki, and problem with uh, Deaton is 
he's not super athletic. Uh, he's kind of slow and plodding himself again by the standards of the lightweight division. Not a whole lot of output in the striking, but hits real hard and tends to kind of wait and look for opportunities to to land one big shot to either finish his opponent or or change the course of the fight. Like he'll rather than jab, he's orthodox, and rather than throw out a left jab, he'll just leap in with a lead left hook or or, or overhand. Uh, he has decent uh, right low kicks, like rear leg low kicks that he doesn't really use enough. But on the ground, he's definitely a submission threat. I just look no longer than look no further than his record or any of his uh, regional fights to see that. But he also has deficiencies defensively on the ground. And given those things, Joe Selecki on short notice was a tough ask. Joe Selecki has turned out to be a pretty good fighter. And specifically, he's a very good ground fighter. Deaton just didn't match up well with him. Here, I think this fight is really up in the air for either guy that wants to take it. And it's hard to trust Munoz off of two years away. Just I, I didn't see anything in either of his fights back in 2020 and 2021 to make me think that there was a world of potential there. Like, you know, for a guy who came to the UFC six and zero, he came six and zero fairly old. Like he's kind of a, a late bloomer and you can, I mean, you can make an argument that uh, his best win is still over Nick Newell on the contender series. Uh, here I'm leaning towards the slight upset. Uh, if it turns into a low volume striking battle on the feet, I think Deaton is more likely to do damage with the individual strikes. He lands. He's just, he's a harder hitter. And if it goes to the ground, I think it'll be down a lot to who takes it there and who kind of lands in top position. But if Deaton is the one who forces this fight to the ground, I think he definitely has the advantage there. Yeah. I mean, give me, give me Carl Deaton in uh, the slight upset here. I'm going to say when you made it to the, uh, to the final horn against more established fighters than Deaton, but uh, give me Deaton to, hit Munoz a few more times or a few harder times on the feet and to get the better of whatever exchanges there are on the ground. We head now to the Bantamweight division for a clash between Tyson Nam and the debuting Azat Maksum. Nam, the 39-year-old Hawaiian by way of Oregon, by way of uh, Arizona, is 21-13-1 over the course of a well-traveled career. He is three and four in the UFC, but it is worth noting that he's two and zero at bantamweight. Uh, Nam has bounced back and forth between flyweight and bantamweight throughout his career. He is one and four at flyweight in the UFC, so that is a experiment that is uh, clearly not panned out for him as he pushes forty. But he's two and zero at bantamweight, and he'll be looking to get to three and zero here against the debuting uh, Maxum, twenty-eight year old from Kazakhstan is a perfect 16 and 0 in his professional mixed martial arts career. He used to fight in Brave CF, of course the uh Bahrain based promotion that has become quite a feeder league to the UFC in the last few years, but his last couple of fights have taken 
place in Octagon Promotion, which not Octagon MMA, the one from Czech Republic, but Octagon Promotion from Kazakhstan, which is even lower level. But uh, he is coming in off of uh, a first round submission of Fabricio Nunes back in January. Maxim, one of the biggest favorites on the card. Interestingly, he is minus 450. Nam plus 325. Uh, I'll talk about Nam first. I'm glad that he is taking this fight at 135 pounds. He was a huge 125 pounder. He's still not going to be undersized at 135. And again, he's 39 years old and closer to 40 than 39. Like he'll turn 40 in uh turn 40 in in October of this year. So even more reason to get out of the speed kills 125 pound division and up to 135 where it's still pretty fast moving traffic, but maybe more manageable for him. I will say that he has been fighting the perfect way you would want to for a lighter weight fighter pushing 40. Uh, if I mean, if you watched UFC 290 this past weekend and you saw just that absolute furious instant classic between Brandon Moreno and Alessandri Pantoja. That's what most of the flyweight top 10 looks like. Just constant motion, ultra fast moving stuff on the feet as well as on the ground. And really the only top 10 flyweight right now in the UFC that doesn't fight the way is probably Kyara France. Uh, Tyson M has been pretty slow and steady in all of his UFC fights. He you know, knows that speed is no no longer going to be an advantage for him, especially against the kind of people he's uh, been fighting. So, you know, he's leaning on power punching. I'll say he's been managing his uh, his output. He, it's not like he's just waiting and waiting and waiting and loading up for a single kill shot, but he's definitely choosing his spots. Uh, he's not. He hasn't been trying to keep up in terms of pure volume with people like Matt Schnell, for, just for example. So just being deliberate uh, has served him well. It's made him very survivable at an age where practically nobody is or or has been in the history of the sport in these divisions. Uh, it will remain to be seen whether that will be enough for him to have any... In, any continued lifespan at 135 pounds and specifically against Maxum here. If you're wondering how somebody got to the UFC with a perfect 16 and 0 record without making much of a, a splash on the radar as Maxum has done, uh, I'll let you know why I still am not sure how good he is watching his regional fights. He definitely has some, elite tools and he has some physical tools that will cause matchup problems even for UFC level fighters. I just said that Nam is a huge 125 pounder. So is Maxum in a little bit different way. Nam is more like just very broad and stacked and muscular for a guy in those divisions. Maxum is a little bit more of the long rangey tall for the division type, but also a very big 125 pounder who fought a few times at catch weights uh, in the CIS. So he'll still be decent sized at 135 pounds as well, but 
the good part of his regional record is that it's not built up on cans. He's actually beaten some pretty damn good fighters in Brave CF and, and in Octagon. The bad side of it is he has somehow remained undefeated despite a bunch of habits that aren't going to serve him well at uh, in the UFC, I don't, I don't think. He's still fighting like a guy who is used to overwhelming inferior fighters based purely on his physicality uh, and aggression. Kind of like a couple other people we'll talk about later on this card. But I mean, just for example, um, he is an orthodox striker who he's willing to throw his jab, but it's nothing great. Uh, really, the best thing his jab can do for him is set up his right cross, which is his best punch. His right hand in general uh, is really his his power punch. He has a nice uh, right cross, nice right overhand that he throws with power. And sometimes he'll even throw him without a jab. Just He's just run right up on people and and just swung the, the right hand at them. Again, that's not something he's going to be able to do for long against the flyweights and or, or bantamweights in the UFC. And he comes in with a very common, very typical tall striker problem where comes in chin up, hands down, not very good hand uh, head movement where he's open for counters. Not too many people have been able to take advantage of it yet, but he's been hit and rung up and knocked down on the regional scene more than a few times. And this might be looking a little too far ahead, but a real hard counter-striker like uh, Kai Kara France or Manel Cop will absolutely put his lights out if he tries that. Here, it's just a question of whether Tyson Nam will be able to catch him. Uh, Maxum is a willing grappler. I mean, he has more submissions than knockouts on his record. He's willing to shoot, but he shoots from too far out and very telegraphed. But if his opponent decides to pancake him, you know, sprawl and then try to take the back or whatever. He does very well in the ensuing scramble. Uh, if I were Nam's coach in this fight, I would just say, if he shoots, you sprawl, you separate and you get back up because uh, his shots really, they serve their purpose. Even if he doesn't secure the takedown, even if he's just able to initiate a scramble, uh, he has a good tall man ground game where he's kind of, able to take the back and threaten with chokes from odd angles. He's pretty good at sinking the hooks quickly. Uh, and again, was able to generally overwhelm smaller, less athletic fighters on the regional scene with that will remain to be seen whether he's able to do that here against, uh, against Nam. This is not a betting show. I say that at least one time per show. Just understand that when I'm here by myself, it goes double uh, because I'm not even a better myself, but I will say that I haven't seen anything from either of these guys that makes me think Maxum should be a greater than four to one favorite here. Uh, Maxum's bad habits on the feet can absolutely get him plunked by someone in Nam who does spend a good amount of his time looking for a perfect counter. And Nam is generally able to take care of himself on the ground and is very physically strong. I could see Maxum unable to get takedowns, unable to bait Nam into scrambling with them and just getting stuck on the feet, throwing single strikes without any setup and just being uh, target practice for a very savvy veteran in Nam. I'm going to lean towards Maxum here. Again, 
fresher, probably still improving uh, at age 28. Whereas Nam, the wheels should be set to start falling off at any time here. Not only is he close to 40, but he had a long career across multiple weight classes before getting to the UFC. In some cases, fighting much bigger guys. He's been in some wars. He's taken some damage over the years. Uh, he Any fight now could be the fight where his chin or his cardio finally just goes over a, a cliff or his uh, his speed really, really takes a step back. Given all that, it's tough to call for the upset here, though I, I wouldn't be too shocked if it happens. But uh, give me Max Zoom to win, pick up a decision, but maybe get hurt early and have to come back from that. Maybe have to hang on late, but I would not be at all surprised, and I am expecting to for him to get some things from Nam that let him know a little bit of what might be uh, awaiting him in the UFC in future fights. But for now, maximum by decision, and at seventeen and zero, expect some kind of hype to to start cranking up. We head back to the lightweight division and a matchup between Evan Elder and Gennaro Valdez. Elder, the twenty six year old Stockton, California native, is seven and two overall. He is zero and two in the UFC. Debuted last April at UFC Fight Night Lemos versus Andrade, where he dropped a unanimous decision to Preston Parsons, came back this February at UFC Fight Night Andrade versus Blanchfield, where uh, he was getting the better of a wild fight against Nazim Sadikov before getting cut, busted wide open early in the third and uh, losing due to a doctor stoppage. So though he's had some flashes, of success, he is still looking for his first win in the octagon, and uh, he'll be facing off against someone who is doing the same in Valdez. Thirty-one-year-old Mexican is ten and two overall. He is also zero and two in the UFC since joining out of the fifth season of Dana White's Contender Series. He debuted last January at UFC 270, getting knocked out in the first round by Matt Frivola. Came back last December at UFC on ESPN Thompson versus Holland, where he dropped a unanimous decision to Natan Levy. Odds favor Elder heavily. He is a minus 290 or so. Valdez available around plus 240 as the underdog. Uh, Elder, there are reasons to be optimistic. These are both guys that came to the UFC as undefeated prospects and have both lost their first two fights. For all they know, they may well be fighting for their jobs here. But of the two, uh, Elder certainly has shown the more upside. He's the younger fighter, and he's the one who was winning a fight until he wasn't. Uh, as I said, back in February against Sadikov, uh, he was he had gotten the better of two wild rounds before uh, getting cut wide open and uh, losing that way. He is the one who, at least by the eyeball test, has the uh, elite athleticism. I mean, he is ripped, and he does have most of the athleticism that that, that his build would seem to imply. He is fast-moving. He is powerful. He's pretty fluid. He is a Nick Diaz protege, but he, unlike Diaz, mostly 
wants to do things on the feet. Like he is, he is capable of wrestling, but generally only pulls it out when he doesn't like what he's getting on the feet. Valdez, he's a more active. Uh, he comes forward, blows up all of his punches. He can kick, but does often choose them. He is a surprisingly good wrestler when he wants to be, but generally only brings it out when I kind of like Elder when he's not liking what he's getting on the feet or occasionally will pull it out as just sort of a reactive surprise thing. He's already had more success than I expected him to. And I'm saying that about a guy who's 0-2 in the UFC. Just the Frivola fight, if you're an aggressive brawler who comes up, you know, and swings real hard on everything, Matt Frivola is a tough guy to do that against because he thrives on that kind of fight. And generally speaking, he has the close quarters defense and the chin and the power to get the better of it. Against the Tom Levy, I think Valdez had, he had it in him to, if not win that fight, at least be a lot more competitive, but all of his aggression kind of went out the window. He just seemed really wary of Levy. And I don't know if that's because Levy was this ripped athlete with, uh, fast hands and hard punches. Hopefully that's not what it is because that's exactly how you could describe elder as well. But either way, I think this matchup does, uh, does favor elder. He's going to be faster than Valdez. While both of them hit hard, Valdez hits hard either by overswinging or hits hard and overswings. Whereas Elder's a little more composed, more diverse. Uh, I could see Elder's kicks being a, a big part of his office here. And while neither fighter likes to wrestle as his first choice. Both of them are capable of it. And of the two, I think Elder would be the one more likely to do it as a strategic choice. Uh, evenly matched fight, probably more so than the odds indicate, but I'm going to go with Elder here. And given that I've seen Valdez's uh, chin cracked at, at this level, whereas I haven't seen that in Elder, like Elder, Elder's loss to Sadikov was because he got cut, not because he was hurt that badly by that strike. Uh, I'm going to say Elder gets it done by second round TKO here, but probably a whole hell of a lot of fun for as long as it lasts. But give me Elder to get the better of, uh, of a two-round firefight. We head now to the featherweight division and a matchup between Austin Lingo and Melchizedek Costa. Lingo, the 29-year-old Texan, is 9-2 and two overall. He is 2-2 two and two in the UFC. He is coming in off of a loss. Uh, he last appeared back in March at UFC on ESPN, Vera versus Handhagen, where he got choked out late in the second round by Nate Landwehr. He will look to get things back on track against Costa. 26-year-old Brazilian is 19-6 and six overall. He is 0-1 since joining the UFC at the beginning of this year. He stepped up on short notice at UFC 283 to face uh, Tiago Moises and ended up losing by a face crank submission late in the second round. 
second chance he hopes is the uh is the charm for him and he is favored to get it done costa is minus 200 lingo plus 170 on the comeback oh worth noting that uh costa's ufc debut was at lightweight where most of the latter part of his uh regional career took place here he is dropping to 145 austin lingo uh has a pretty uh pretty straightforward approach uh he comes forward he throws a lot of punches and some kicks as hard as he possibly can uh he, I, I mean he throws hard enough that I, I've seen him, you know, throw himself off balance with punches more than once. It is impressive for a guy who is a pretty big featherweight and throws that hard. He's dangerous and effective for all three rounds. I he came into the landware fight off of back to back decision wins where I mean he got tired, but he's got that Yoel Romero or Derek Lewis thing where, yeah, he looks tired, starts breathing through his mouth, but he's still throwing hard, effective offense, and his opponent is never able to take it easy or take his foot off the gas against him. It's a it's a pretty impressive quality. Costa, as far as I'm concerned, he gets a total mulligan on his debut. I mean, short-notice debut against Tiago Moises. Like, come on. Uh, he acquitted himself reasonably well in that fight, mostly just kind of looked happy to be there. Uh, Jay Petri, our text play-by-play guy was making me laugh with his, uh, with his play-by-play of the Moises versus Costa fight. Cause he couldn't stop commenting about just how thrilled Costa seemed to be there. Even as Moises was like kicking him and punching him in the face and eventually taking him down and submitting him uh, here. Hopefully that octagon bliss octagon jitters. I, I don't know what you'd call it. Hopefully that's out of his system. If he makes the transition to 145 uh, smoothly, I think that's probably a good thing for him because he isn't a huge lightweight. If he makes weight, I expect that at least by the eyeball test, he and Lingo will be about the same size. Uh, In broad strokes, his skill set isn't too different from Lingo's. Uh, He also is a march forward type of fighter. Uh, He throws really hard as well i mean not quite as recklessly so as lingo but definitely puts a lot into every uh into every strike he's a little more of a willing grappler than than lingo is but the problem with uh costa is it just doesn't feel as though he's in control of his fights and part of that might just be due to being so young he has a lot of fights under his belt but he's still just 26 years old uh, but he had to know where Tiago Moises stood the best chance of beating him and still just couldn't avoid just crashing right into Moises and letting himself be taken down here. That, that makes me think that even if he knows what lingo wants to do, which is march him down and punch him in the face, uh, he might not have the presence of mind to, to get out of the way of his opponent's best weapons. That makes me nervous uh, about taking him in this fight, even as a favorite, but you know, He's younger than Lingo. I think he's more athletic. If he makes 145 and is in good shape to compete, uh, I, I think he's going to seem bigger and stronger, even if they, they look about the same size. I think uh, if his power translates, it's going to be at least as good as Lingo's. So always the chance that 
Costa just walks right into a haymaker, but I think that's the outside chance. Uh, give me Costa to win a decision in a real fun fight here. And just, uh, I'd like to see Costa be a little more measured, maybe take lingo down and ply his grappling advantage there. But, uh, how, whichever way he gets it done, I think he probably wins a decision here. We head now to the strawweight division and a matchup between Victoria Dudakova and Estela Nunez. Dudakova, the 24-year-old Russian, is a perfect 6-0 as a professional mixed martial artist. She will be making her UFC debut here. Uh, she fought on the Contender Series last August, taking a decision over Maria Silva in what at the time was a pretty significant upset. That was enough to get her signed to the Big Octagon, where she will look for her first UFC win against a fighter who can say the same, despite having had three chances to do so. Nunes, 30-year-old Brazilian, is 6-4 and four with one no contest overall. She is 0-3 since joining the UFC uh, out of one championship. She fought most recently last December at UFC on ESPN Thompson versus Holland, where she was uh, punched out by Jasmine uh, Yasmin Haragim. Prior to that, uh, she lost a decision to Sam Hughes and got choked out by Ariane Carnalosi. So uh, Nunes, almost certainly in the last fight of her initial UFC deal, almost certainly fighting for a job here, and she is not favored to keep it as Dudakova is minus 270 uh, as the favorite here, Nunez around plus 225 or plus 230 as the underdog. Okay, let's get things out of the way first. Victoria Dudakova is uh, an extremely attractive young woman. That only matters if she can fight. Uh, for as long as there is a UFC from here on out, we're probably going to see uh, a number of attractive young women from Eastern Europe and the CIS signed. Uh, to come fight in the octagon. Only time will tell whether they turn out to be the next Valentina Shevchenko, i.e. one of the best fighters on the planet who also happens uh, to be good looking, or the next Alexandra Albu, who was basically a walking OnlyFans waiting to happen and actually couldn't fight that well. Dudakova, uh, She's a rudimentary striker. Uh, she comes forward behind punches, mostly looping punches, and mostly she's just punching her way into the clinch. Uh, she has a very judo slash sambo based takedown game, mostly body locks, trips, hip throws. She is a good grappler. Uh, she can be heavy on top when she wants to be, but she has a very Russian, especially kind of old school Russian thing where she would much prefer to keep things moving and try to take the back or even threaten with uh, leg locks. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, a good grappler. She's a good size for the division, pretty strong, and probably will only continue to get stronger. She, again, is just 24 and just turned 24 uh, this year. But so, like, at least at this point in her development, it comes in as very much a specialist. Uh, her, her striking is kind of an ugly means to an end right now but if she can get the fight to the ground she's done pretty well uh i think if she sticks around in the ufc it'll probably be in her best interest to 
become more willing to settle into an opponent's guard, try to secure position, then advance position, do damage, and threaten with submissions rather than what she uh, showed over in, you know, over in Europe and Asia, which was more again get the takedown, but keep the scramble going and and just try to snatch a neck or, or snatch a back control out of nowhere. The good news for her is that while she has some deficiencies in her skill set and some stylistic flaws that probably uh, will need to be worked out, Nunez is probably not the one to punish her for them. Uh, Nunez came to the UFC as a good striker, like obviously good striker, skilled striker, but she hasn't been able to make it work against UFC level strawweights. She has a particular range and speed that she likes to work at. And if she's allowed to work at that, that range of speed, kind of the outside of boxing range into kicking range and let her be the one to kind of dictate the action. It's pretty. Uh, she throws, you know, beautiful straight punches, a nice variety of kicks. She has good pop, but nobody's let her do it. And she hasn't been able to force him to, I, I mean, you could say the same thing about Edson Barboza that, oh yeah, he's a kickboxer who likes to work from a certain range, but he managed to make it work to the point where he has one of the greatest highlight reels in the history of the sport. Nunez hasn't been able to do that yet. And the problem is she hasn't been able to do it against people like Ari Ariani Carnalosi and Sam Hughes, neither of whom are great fighters. I mean, Carnalosi is probably out of the UFC right now. And Hughes is kind of settled in as very much a middle shelf straw weights. But what they both did was they came forward, they crashed the pocket, they put their hands on her and they at least tried to take her down. And they both succeeded in, in getting her down. And they both kind of bullied her there. Considering that that's all Dudakova really does at this point, the UFC couldn't have found an opponent that that would be more likely to work on. So, uh, Bad news for Nunez here, I, I think. A unless Dudakova just turns up and, you know, the the athleticism and aggression she showed on her regional career turn out to be a bill of goods, I think Nunez is tailor-made for her to style on. And I would have been very dubious of Dudakova if uh, this were her just getting signed straight out of uh, Russia or Ukraine or wh wherever it was she fought last. But I saw her beat Maria Silva on the contender series Silva was like a two or three to one favorite there. And Silva is pretty big and strong and Dudakova still made it work well enough uh, to win an uncontroversial decision in Silva. I think she's already beaten someone who's better than Nunez. So give me Victoria Dudakova to keep the ball rolling here. I expect that she's going to close the distance with Nunez. Nunez is going to have one or two chances to tag her up on her way in and if she can just do something that either starches Dudakova or at least stops her in her tracks and makes her not want to come forward anymore, fair play to her, but she's not succeeded in doing so yet. So give me Dudakova to come in behind a bunch of swarming hooks, grab Nunez, throw her to the ground, and probably just do the whole Looney Tunes, uh, you know, dust up uh Tasmanian devil thing on her and uh come out with back control and uh, a rear naked choke probably whatever the specific technique is give me Dudakova by first round submission here 
Next up at UFC on ESPN 49, and at least as the card is constituted as of the beginning of fight week, the top prelim features a featherweight matchup between Tucker Lutz and Melsic Bagdasarian. Lutz, the 28-year-old Maryland native, is 12-3 overall. He is 1-2 since joining the UFC out of the fourth season of Dana White's Contender Series, where he competed twice, six weeks apart. Uh, he won his UFC debut back uh, just a little over two years ago, a uh, unanimous decision over Kevin Aguilar. Since then, he has back-to-back -back losses to Pat Sabatini and Daniel Pineda. The most recent of those, the Pineda fight, was at UFC on ESPN Vera versus Sandhagen back in March. So he's looking to snap a two-fight losing streak, uh, and opposing him in that endeavor will be Bagdasarian. The 31-year-old from Glendale is 7-2 overall. He is 2-1 since joining the UFC out of the very same season of the Contender Series. Uh, he beat Dennis Bazookia on the Contender Series, then uh, came to the UFC, won his first two fights against Colin Anglin and Bruno Souza before taking all of 2022 off, uh, returned to the cage in February, and was shocked by Josh Kulabau uh, on the way to a second-round submission loss. So he's looking uh, to get back in the win column as well. He is comfortably favored to do so. Uh, Bagdasarian is minus 210 right now. Lutz plus 180. Tucker Lutz is a whole lot of fun. And at just age 28, there's every chance that he'll continue to improve and we might not have seen the best of him yet, but what we've seen of him so far seems like a, a borderline UFC quality featherweight at best. Uh, I mean, he won a real fun fight against Kevin Aguilar, but Aguilar is a marginal UFC talent himself. When he fought a real good fighter in Pat Sabatini, he did well to survive. But that's about it. Uh, got out wrestled, got out grappled and had precious few moments of effective offense of his own. And then against Pineda, a guy that his style, which I'll get to in a moment, should have worked against, could have worked against. It just didn't. Uh, let's he is well-rounded. He can wrestle. He can grapple. Uh, but in practice, and I feel like I've said this about like half the men on this card, uh, he's a guy that comes forward and throws punches real hard. Um, having said that, he does throw a decent amount of volume. He doesn't count on one-punch knockouts. He just counts on getting in firefights, landing more than his opponent does, and winning through an accumulation of damage. Half of his career wins are by knockout or TKO, and they pretty much all are from accumulated damage. So it's generally worked well for him, but... Uh, against Pineda, he just seemed to be a step behind the whole time. Uh, when he was coming forward and trying to punch, Pineda was striking for opportunistic takedowns. And then once things went to the ground, just Lutz really seemed to step behind against a very opportunistic, venomous offensive grappler in Pineda. Just He looked overmatched the whole time. And I say that as someone who picked Lutz to win that fight, but there were precious few moments that he was winning that fight. He just he, he got he got outclassed from pillar to post by Pineda. That's not a great sign, considering that Pineda is well on his way to 40. It also leaves me struggling to think of ways that he's going to have the advantage over Bagdasarian. Uh, 
Melzik Bagdasarian, as you might have guessed from the Glendale origin and the Armenian last name, he is a Glendale Fight Club guy. He is a, uh, you know, Edmund Tarverdian disciple. Uh, he is a very good kickboxer, though. Uh, you know, he has some kickboxing titles under his belt. He had a professional kickboxing career. He is a compact, powerful kickboxer. Uh, think more like Rafael Faziv than someone like Giga Chikadze or Yair Rodriguez. Like He's not the long, lanky type. He's short, compact. Uh, he has all the weapons, plenty of power, but he has great leg kicks. Uh, his leg kicks have formed some kind of factor in all of his UFC fights so far. He will try spinning stuff, which I, I'm not mad at it because he doesn't overdo it. You know, he throws it in as a surprise. He'll throw it in at the very end of a round, just trying to ding somebody up or get a knockdown that, you know, maybe tilts the balance of a close round towards him. Uh, exactly the place you'd want fighters to throw spinning stuff. He's not just out there like spamming the same spinning back fist over and over again. Uh, question marks about him. His gas tank is questionable, or at the very least, it's untested. On his regional career, I mean, he won four fights in a row in under 30 seconds each or something like that on his way to the Contender Series. He had to go all five minutes on the Contender Series, and he's had to go past the first round at least uh, in all three of his UFC fights. But it's still an open question whether... Uh, he could make a high-volume kickboxing game go for three hard rounds. But he may not need to here. Lutz has the tools to give Bagdasarian problems. Uh, you know, he could certainly test his takedown defense. But Lutz's approach, I think, is just going to send him right into the wood chipper here. Lutz wants to come come forward, strike hard. He does have good power, but Bagdasarian has better power. And... I have the feeling that Lutz is going to be there all day for Bagdasarian's low kicks. Uh, yeah, I think this is a bad matchup for Lutz. Give me Bagdasarian by second round TKO here. Lightweights take the cage next as it is a couple of intriguing young prospects in the form of Terrence McKinney and Nazim Sadikov. McKinney, the 28-year-old Washington State native, is 13-5 overall. He is 3-2 since joining the UFC as a veteran of the third season of Dana White's Contender Series. He actually lost on the Contender Series, went back to uh, a bunch of regional promotions, including LFA, for a couple of years before making his debut uh, back almost exactly two years ago. Since then, again, 3-2 and two in the UFC, though he is coming off of a loss, uh, got starched by Ismael Bonfim at UFC 283 back in January. So he'll be looking to bounce back from that against uh, Sadikov. The 29-year-old Azerbaijani, by way of Long Island, New York, is 8-1, and one Overall, he is 1-0 since joining the UFC out of the sixth season of the Contender Series. Uh, he beat Ahmad Sohail Hassanzada on the Contender Series, debuted in the UFC in February at UFC Fight Night Andrade versus Blanchfield, where he staged a bit of a comeback and stopped Evan Elder on a pretty nasty cut early in the third round of a fight he was probably behind in. Uh, so Tadikov looking to build on his positive momentum. McKinney looking to get some back. 
Sadikov is the favorite to get it done. He is out there around minus 160 or so. McKinney available at plus 130 on the comeback. Uh, it's hard not to get too excited about Terrence McKinney. When you debut in the UFC and you starch a reliable, tough fighter like Matt Frivola in seven seconds, regardless of the fact that Frivola got up uh, protesting, you've announced your presence uh, emphatically. Then right after that, he chokes out for as I am in less than half a round, establishing himself as a quick strike uh, finisher on the ground, as well as on the feet. Uh, hard not to get too excited about that. He has taken a couple of losses at the UFC level. Now he obliged Drew Dober with one of the more exciting one round fights you're ever likely to see, but came out on the wrong end of that. And then, uh, as I said earlier, got knocked out real bad by Bonfim in his uh, in his most recent outing. The good news about McKinney, well, there's a lot of good news about McKinney. He's still just 28 years old. Uh, he is an extremely dynamic athlete, and he is a diverse. Uh, he's a diverse threat offensively. Quick strike, opportunistic submission game on the ground, obviously blinding speed and numbing power on the feet. However, even though he is at this point almost about to be a 20-fight veteran, he doesn't seem to have much of a second idea if he's not able to blow through people in a minute or two. Uh, it worked for him just fine on the way up. The only people he lost to before uh, the UFC were future UFC types like Sean Woodson, Derek Minner. But at this point in the UFC, a few times he's been dealing with fighters who are more durable than what he was used to fighting up in the Northwest. Ones who can match or at least rival his athleticism. Ones who have significant uh, offensive weapons of their own. And he just, it's not like he quits or wilts. He's definitely out there trying to win. But again, just doesn't seem to have much of a plan B at this point in his career. There's a trend that's difficult to ignore and kind of disturbing in 18 career fights. He has been past the three minute mark only four times. And he is one in three in those four fights. That's, I mean, that's kind of all you need to know. If McKinney can't finish the fight in three minutes, he's probably in trouble. Um, whether that'll cost him here against Sadikov is an open question. The good news about Sadikov is he is a big lightweight. He's an athletic lightweight. He's a southpaw, good boxer with power in his strikes. Uh, he hits the body. I love that. He has a solid kicking game. Uh, I like that. He is one who is willing to kick the legs and kick the body as an investment in future attrition, in future dividends. As a big lightweight who swings hard, he seems to head off cardio problems at the pass by managing them with pace. And by itself, there's nothing at all wrong with that. Many great fighters uh, have, have done that. Jose Aldo managed his cardio with pace. Davis and Figueredo managed his cardio by managing his pace. You know, uh, they were both in high-speed divisions, both in divisions where just about everybody had great cardio, and they were notably big muscular guys for the division. And... They got around that by just 
keeping it at a medium high pace, as high a pace as they thought they could uh, handle, worked like a charm for both of them. Uh, the problem with Sadikov is he's not Jose Aldo, he's not Davis and Figueredo, and he runs a real risk of losing rounds because he's not throwing enough volume to put a stamp on them. Perfect example is his fight with Evan Elder. And we already talked about that one earlier in this show from Elder's perspective. But what you need to know about it from Sadikov's perspective is he had probably lost the first two rounds before he cut Elder early in the third. And there's nothing wrong with winning by cut. It's not like there should be an asterisk by that. He he beat Elder, but... The, I'm pretty sure it was a knee. Yeah, the knee that opened the huge cut on Elder's brow, it didn't really rock him that badly. So if it hadn't happened to hit at the right angle to open that huge cut, there's every chance that Elder recovers, fights on, even if he drops that round, still beats Sadikov two rounds to one. In other words, Sadikov's basic approach to fighting here barely worked against Evan Elder. And... That's concerning when you're thinking about him taking on someone like McKinney, uh, because McKinney, in a lot of ways, is a deluxe version of Elder. He's an extremely athletic lightweight who has finishing power on the feet, unquestionably, and McKinney is actually faster and more athletic than Elder, might be a harder hitter, strike for strike, and has a much more proven offensive ground game than Elder does. So in general terms, kind of a superior version of Elder in a lot of ways. And Sadikov just barely got by Elder. It, if he goes out with the kind of measured pace, but willingness to trade that he did against Elder that dropped him the first two rounds, good chance that McKinney leaves him staring at the lights within the first half of a round. Uh, that's kind of what I'm leaning towards here. It would be a little bit of an upset, but in McKinney, I see someone who is extremely dangerous, has some flaws, uh, not really in his skill set so much as in his approach. He's young enough that there's every chance that he might be working on those and we might see a different version of him here that doesn't look quite as out of sorts if the fight goes past the first round. But even if he's the exact same McKinney that dusted Frivola and Siam and lost to Dober and Bonfim, I think he might be enough to get by Sadikov anyway. Uh, Sadikov's willingness to kind of go toe-to-toe, get in wild fights, combined with his seeming not to want to step on the gas pedal until later in the fight, means he might just get caught early by McKinney and gotten out of there. And that's actually what I'm leaning towards here. So give me McKinney by first-round knockout. I guess a first round submission, a club and sub type thing, or a, a wild scramble that ends with McKinney grabbing a, a guillotine or a back take wouldn't shock me either. But I think it's more likely that McKinney just catches Sadikov, not quite in gear yet, hurts him bad in the first round and finishes this. So uh, Terrence McKinney in the slight to moderate upset over uh, Nazim Sadikov is my call. Next up at UFC Vegas 77 is a lightweight matchup between Atman Azetar and Francisco Prado. Azetar, the 33-year-old Moroccan-born 
fighter out of Germany is uh, 13 and one overall. He is two and one since joining the UFC as a former Brave CF lightweight champ. He is coming off a loss. Uh, he fought most recently at UFC 281 last November, where he got knocked out halfway through the first round by Matt Frivola. That snapped a two-fight winning streak within the UFC uh, for Azatar. And if you're trying to think right now and remember which Azatar brother this is, this is the potato guy. Uh, the fight with Frivola is the one that was delayed for well over a year because Azatar famously was kicked out of the fighter uh, compound and briefly cut from the UFC for having someone climb the outside of the hotel and try to sneak what he claims was a bag of potatoes into him uh, in Abu Dhabi. One of the weirder and dumber episodes in recent UFC history, but he was re-signed, ended up losing that fight anyway. He's looking for some redemption here against Prado. 21-year-old Argentinian. I mean, I know Raul Rosas Jr. is definitely the youngest fighter in the UFC, but uh, Prado, having just barely turned 21 a couple weeks ago, is definitely still way up there. He is 11-1 overall. He is 0-1 since joining the UFC as the outgoing Samurai Fight House lightweight champ. Uh, debuted in February at UFC 284. Dropped a unanimous decision to Jamie Malarkey. Uh, that was Prado stepping up on short notice. It's it's worth noting. Uh, odds on this one, fairly close, but Prado was actually your slight favorite. He's minus 130, Azatar plus 100. Uh, Azatar, it's, it's hard to tell what we have in the guy because coming in out of Brave CF, he didn't have much to recommend him other than the actual in-cage results. Uh, he is a very short, stocky, lightweight, not much reach doesn't make his reach any better because he doesn't typically throw many straight punches. Uh, he swings hard on everything. His overhand right is his money punch, and it's definitely a, a hooking, curving punch. So he's a short guy with short reach that makes it even worse by the way he fights. But nonetheless, up through the first half decade of his career and even his first couple fights in the UFC, it worked like a charm. You go down the list and he has a ton of quick knockouts, including quick knockouts of Tamu Pakalin and Kama Worthy in his first couple of fights in the UFC. Just it kind of all worked for Atman Azatar. He's a little older than you would have liked a debuting prospect to be. I, I mean, he was 29 when he when he debuted. He had, of course, that long layoff due to the stupid potato incident. At this point, he's 33. It's not really a prospect anymore. It's it's kind of go time for this guy. But he hasn't shown much other than that he is a come forward brawler that wants to instigate a phone booth fight and thus far, except in his fight with Frivola, has gotten the better of those. That requires a particular kind of fighter to work uh, for Azatar. It's going to need to be somebody that is willing to oblige him with that kind of fight, like Worthy was, but isn't better than him at that kind of fight like Frivola was. And I don't know how many lightweights there are in the UFC like that. I do know that Prado, there's a good possibility 
that he would qualify, at least in the first regard, as someone who's going to give Azatar the kind of fight he wants. Uh, <clears throat> he Prado is wild. He has a lot of power. He's a big lightweight. Uh, and at age 21, with his height and his frame, he may not be long for the lightweight division. I could see him being somebody that whether he sticks in the UFC or not, we see him at welterweight by the time he's 25 or 26. He certainly wouldn't be the the first. Uh, but this is the something that I, if you're a regular of this show, you've heard me say about a lot of incoming prospects to the UFC. And I'll keep on saying it because it's true and it's applicable. There's a certain kind of prospect that comes to the uh, UFC undefeated or, or nearly undefeated. But when you look back at the tape, it is clearly them leveraging one or two good offensive techniques, superior strength and athleticism, and the aggression to leverage those advantages against overmatched fighters. Uh, there's a ton. I mean, frankly, the majority of prospects coming to the UFC are, are like that. Uh, the question is always, will they be able to make adjustments once they're in there against fighters that they can't just blow through by whatever they want within two minutes. Uh, Prado, even in his loss to Malarkey, there were some some encouraging things to take from there. Uh, against Malarkey, he was fighting somebody that, I mean, he's bigger than Jamie Malarkey. He's a better athlete than Malarkey. He's younger, taller, longer reach, just about every offensive advantage. But Malarkey is unbelievably tough, persistent, Annoying, probably an annoying guy to fight. And he's a builder and he's a breaker. You know, he gets better from round to round as his opponents wear down. He's one of those freaks of nature where getting a little dinged up seems to wake him up and make him fight harder. And he's a bit of a breaker. He multiple times in his career has kind of worn out, broken, uh, bigger, better, more athletic fighters, just like Prado. And while Prado got tired against Malarkey. The wheels didn't completely fall off the wagon. While he was probably discouraged by the end of the fight, he didn't just quit or wilt. So if that is the fight that shows Prado, you know, what it's like to lose, what it's like to fight in the UFC, and it sent him back to the drawing board, then it may end up being the best possible thing for him uh, going forward. Both these guys have something to prove here. Uh, Azatar has to prove that he either has more nuances to his game than what he's really shown in the last couple of years. And Prado has to show that he either has the ability to adjust in fight if his accustomed approach isn't working for him. Or he has to show that he's refined that approach to the point where, yeah, I can just run over uh, UFC guys as well. Those are basically mutually exclusive goals for these two. Prado is the slight favorite here. And I, I definitely worry that he's going to come at Azatar and give Azatar exactly the kind of fight he wants. I, I, Prado being taller, probably quicker, definitely better reach should try to avoid a close quarters phone booth fight with a Zaytar. I, he, he should maybe kick his legs, use lateral movement, try for some takedowns or, you know, at, at least fainting level changes to keep a Zaytar from just 
crashing the pocket and loading up on big right hands. I don't know whether he will have the presence of mind to do that, or maybe it'll take him getting uh, rung up by his ATAR before he tries it. But as a slight favorite, I, I am still leaning towards Prado. Of the two of these guys, he is the one more likely to have improved, made adjustments. I, I mean, give me the 21-year-old who's at a very good camp in uh, Parana Valetudo and has been very busy over the 33-year-old who's not been terribly busy any day of the week. So if these guys get into a wild brawl and Prado is staring at the lights in two minutes, I won't be that shocked, but give me Prado either, either to avoid that situation or survive that situation. Uh, hang on and uh, probably be winning going away of these two. I would say that Prado is the one who's likely to have more functional cardio at the end of a three round fight, just based on what I've seen from him. Neither of them is terribly proven, but uh, again, in the absence of knowledge, give me the younger guy here. So give me Prado to maybe survive a scare in the first round, hang on to win and be the fresher, more active fighter by the end of the fight. Prado by decision is my call. Next up, women's featherweights take the cage as Norma Dumont faces Chelsea Chandler. Dumont, the 32-year-old Brazilian, is 9-2 overall. She is 6-2 in the UFC. She's on a two-fight win streak since dropping a split decision to Macy Chasson just a little over a year ago. Uh, she has back-to-back -back unanimous decision wins over Danielle Wolf and Carl Hosa. The most recent of those, the Hosa fight, was at UFC Fight Night Pavlovich versus Blades in April. She'll look to make it three in a row and continue to make a case as one of the top candidates, if not the top candidate, to fight for the now vacant UFC women's featherweight title, assuming the promotion does not dissolve the division, uh, and she will do so against Chandler. The 29-year-old American fighting out of Stockton, California, is 5-1 overall. She is 1-0 since joining the UFC as uh, a former standout in Invicta Fighting Championships. And in fact, after losing her professional debut, she is on a five-fight win streak overall. Her UFC debut took place last October at UFC Fight Night Dern versus Jan, where she knocked out Julia Stolyarenko late in the first round. So uh, she's looking to make it two in a row. Dumont looking to make it three in a row in the octagon. Dumont is the slight to moderate favorite to get it done. She's out there around minus 140 or so right now. Chandler available at plus 115 or plus 120 as your underdog. Uh, Chandler, she is a Caesar Gracie jiu-jitsu exponent. She is, uh, I mean, it seems like any woman who comes out of that camp, gets the nickname Chick Diaz. As uh, far as I'm concerned, Leslie Smith will always be Chick Diaz, but uh, Chandler has a, a little bit of the same vibe, though her actual approach to fighting is not necessarily very Diaz-like. Uh, she is a solid grappler, but she would not prefer to do that if the choice is up to her. Uh, she is a southpaw, wants to strike, frankly, uh, wild verging on reckless on the feet, but good power. Uh, 
I will often compare women's featherweight to men's heavyweight, just in terms of the depth of the division and some of the general uh, tendencies. But one big difference is that at heavyweight, almost everybody has big power. At women's featherweight, that is not the case. Chandler is an exception to that. She is a big hitter at 145. Part of it is that she swings so hard, but there's... uh, I think there's good reason to believe that she would still be one of the hardest hitters in the division if even if she didn't overswing like she often does. Just her size, I have the feeling that with you know decent striking mechanics, just sitting on her punches, she would still be one of the harder hitters in the division. And it may come to that at some point. She is a former Bantamweight, very early in her career, moved up pretty quickly. Her fight with Stolyarenko was at a planned 140-pound catchweight. But here, she's coming into this uh, fight as a 145-pounder. Frankly, by the eyeball test, I don't think she could make 135 healthily. She's kind of like Dumont in that regard, where Dumont had a couple of miserably failed attempts to fight at 135 in the UFC before just settling in at 145. Uh, the fight against Stolyarenko, there are some things you can take from that. Just beating Stolyarenko, no great shakes. Uh, you know, Stolyarenko is a bantamweight, kind of a lower level one at that. But Chandler came into that fight knowing exactly what Stolyarenko wanted to do. She wanted to swing wildly into range, get her to the ground however she could. I mean, Stolyarenko is is someone who will pull guard, roll for leg locks, whatever, just to get the fight to the ground and then try to armbar her opponent. And Chandler, even knowing that, just being as aggressive as she is, did end up on the ground early on against Stolyarenko and ended up with Stolyarenko in mount. And Chandler... Didn't panic there. Things could have gone badly, but survived that exchange. Ended up getting back to her feet. Ended up getting Stolyarenko on the ground later and uh, ended up pounding her out on on the ground late in the first round. That's a a good sign for her, but I think she's going to be overmatched here with Dumont. Really in her recent performances, at least her fights haven't been necessarily the most exciting, but that's a secondary consideration. Job number one is to beat the woman in front of you. And she has for the most part been doing that. Looking at the things that Chandler does well, I just, I think it's going to play right into the kind of fight Dumont wants. Uh, Chandler wants to come forward throw big punches. Uh, Dumont, she does have a stand-up background. I've commented a a million times that I think she's a grinder in the body of a kung fu fighter or with the background of a kung fu fighter. But what it really means is Dumont wants to clinch and wants to wrestle, not at all averse to taking it to the ground, uh, which means that even if Dumont sets up in her Sandoz stance, if Chandler comes crashing forward, Dumont will initiate the clinch. She's very good at kind of nullifying and blunting her opponent's forward momentum just by 
grabbing them in the clinch. And from there, she is very strong. At 145, just about everyone is strong, but Dumont uh, plus in that regard and just good at grinding in the clinch on the cage. Tough to move, tough to reverse in those positions. She's pretty good at getting fights to the ground from there if she wants to. Also good at avoiding the takedown if she doesn't want it. Uh, she tends to just be the one in command in those situations. Thanks to that infamous low center of gravity that makes her such a hit with the uh, Shillin and Duffy uh, audience. Really, I don't think Chandler has a distinct advantage on the ground. And moreover, again, I don't think this fight probably goes to the ground unless it goes there at the time, place, and manner of Dumont's choosing. So Chandler's best chance in this fight is to hurt Dumont on the feet and either, you know, set up the finish from there or at least change the course of the fight enough that maybe she can throw Dumont onto the ground and get a club and sub or, or whatever. But Dumont has really only been badly hurt on the feet by Megan Anderson in her UFC debut. And again, that was Dumont's first fight in the UFC. She's a much different, much better fighter than she was three and a half years ago. And Anderson, for whatever her flaws may have been as a fighter, is the biggest and one of the hardest hitting women we've ever seen in mixed martial arts. So hard to falter too much for that. And since then, she's fought plenty of hard hitting women and nobody's really gotten her in trouble on the feet. So it's difficult for me to picture Chandler being the one to do that to her. This just feels like a fight where, again, Chandler's approach is going to play right into what Dumont wants. Uh, give me Dumont to win another Norma Dumont decision here. I ex expect 80% of this fight to take place either actually touching the cage or outside of that warning track area that's about three feet from the cage. Just expect that kind of fight. The striking will take place there. The takedowns will take place there. It'll be at a measured pace. Crowd probably isn't going to love it, but expect Norma Dumont to be in control most of the time. Give me Dumont by decision here, and from there, she'll just kind of have to wait because if she wins, she's the best featherweight the UFC has, and unfortunately for her, she's one of only a handful of true featherweights in the UFC, ones who demonstrably cannot make 135 pounds. So she'll, she'll kind of be at the mercy of the promotion, and we'll just have to wait and see whether she is out looking for a job, trying an inadvisable crash diet, or fighting for a belt sometime later this year. Next up on the main card of UFC Vegas 77 is the lone heavyweight fight on the card. It is Walt Harris against Josh Parisian. Harris, the 40-year-old Alabama native, is 13-10 and 10 with one no contest overall. He is 6-9 and nine with one no contest in the UFC. He is currently mired in a three-fight losing streak, and if you had forgotten that, it is because the most recent of those three losses is just over two years ago. Uh, since his last win, which was when he knocked out Alexi Olenek almost exactly four years ago, uh, he is 0-3 with uh, TKO losses to Alistair Overeem, Alexander Volkov, and Martin Tybura. The most recent of those losses, the Tybura loss, was at UFC Fight Night, Rosenstrike versus Sakai, back in June of 2021. Uh, since then, he has been out for a variety of reasons. He's just coming back now. And again, he is just a few weeks past his 40th birthday. 
Uh, he'll be looking to get back in the win column against Parisian, the 34-year-old Michigan native, 15 and six overall, two and three since joining the UFC as a two-time winner on Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he knocked out Greg Rebello all the way back on season two uh, about five years ago. Was not immediately signed despite the first round knockout. Came back in uh, 2020, so that'd be season four, and got another first round knockout, this time of Chad Johnson. That one apparently impressed the boss enough to sign the big man, and he is uh, two and three since then, alternating losses and wins. He is coming off a loss. He dropped a unanimous decision to Jamal Pogues back in February at UFC Fight Night, Andrade versus Blanchfield. So he's looking to keep the pattern of uh, wins and losses going, at least for this fight, and get back in the win column. Not favored to do so. Harris, despite the long losing streak, despite the long layoff, is a two-to-one favorite. He's minus 200 on most of your books. Parisian out there around plus 170. Uh, regardless of what level you follow the sport on or whether you root for individual fighters, whether you get emotionally invested in them or not. Uh, it's hard not to feel bad for Walt Harris because this is a man who had slugged his way into the top 10. He was on a four fight win streak, though one of them had been reversed to a, a no contest, but you know, had one four straight, at least had his hand raised at the end of the night and then his stepdaughter, Anaya Blanchard, was murdered in uh, in 2020, just weeks, or it may have just been days, but it was very quickly after that. Uh, he took on Alistair Overeem in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 8. He was obviously a sentimental favorite. The UFC was running tributes slash requests for information about uh, Anaya's case in between fights. The, as Keith, my co-host, put it, everyone except for Overeem's mom was probably rooting for Harris that night. Frankly, I think even Overeem's mom might have wanted Walt to win one. But uh, Overeem beat him, came back, lost to Volkov, came back, lost to Tybura. So the bad news is that Harris is now 40, he's had some injuries, and he's lost three fights in a row. The good news whatever silver lining there is in that cloud is that that's a three fight losing streak against top 10 opposition. Uh, one thing about heavyweight is that it's so shallow that if you show any sign of life, if you certainly, if you scrape the top 10, you're almost never going to get a bounce back fight after that. Just, I mean, well, hell just ask Arlovsky who, I mean, he was a champ almost 20 years ago, and still anytime he wins two fights in a row, they throw his 40-some-year-old ass in against a, a top-10 fighter and, and try to kill the man. Uh, Harris, even though he was clearly in free fall, just they kept pitching him top-10 fighters because there's such a divide. There's about 10 heavyweights in the UFC that are any good at all, and then there's a huge gulf, and there's everyone else. And in all three of those top-10 losses, he, I, he was there. The Tybura fight, his most recent loss, that thing was decided by inches. Uh, Harris had Tybura, Tybura hurt really bad in the first round and came, again, just inches away from finishing it with a massive strike. Tybura survived, recovered, escaped from Harris, 
and knocked him out a few minutes later. The Volkov fight was relatively competitive early on. Volkov crushed the body as he does, and there went Harris. And against Overeem in that fight right after uh, his stepdaughter's death, uh, he had Overeem in all kinds of trouble. And again, Overeem survived. He was, is, remains, well, he retired a couple weeks ago, but was for the extent of his career, one of the more underrated wrestlers and topside grapplers in heavyweight MMA history. And he survived the onslaught from Harris, took over. So Harris is on a three-fight losing streak against top 10 opposition, and he was at least in the fight all three times. But that's what it took, plus a two-year layoff, to get him a fight with a guy like Parisian. So this will be a welcome uh, step to maybe a more reasonable level of of competition for where Harris is right now. Uh, The good things about Harris, uh, he's a southpaw. He's very athletic. I mean, obviously, the the eternal stereotype is that the black dude is athletic and explosive, but Harris is by any standards of any person of any pigmentation. Uh, always worth remembering that while he may look like a former college football player, he is a former college basketball player. And as recently as his last couple fights, as he was in his late 30s, he was still, for a guy that looks kind of lumbering when he enters the cage, actually is athletic smooth, deceptively fast, and deceptively rangy. Like, he looks like a guy who's just built like a tank. He's tall, but he's not... I mean, he's very tall, but he's not, like, Volkov tall, but deceptively rangy, honestly, in the same way as Brock Lesnar, where uh, once he kind of unwound his strikes, his arms were surprisingly long and his legs were surprisingly long. Uh, That's Harris. And for a long time, he made hay by kind of like Lesnar to Randy Couture, knocking out people who may have thought they were outside of the range of his punches. So that's the good about Harris. And while I'm sure that has slipped a little bit as he's turned 39 and then 40 while on the shelf, I would be surprised if it had slipped that much. We're still talking about heavyweight where 40 is no impediment to continuing to be competitive. Uh, So even if Harris has slipped a little bit, I would expect him to have a substantial advantage in speed and power over Parisian. That's the good. The bad news is that Harris had and still has one of the worst ground games in the UFC, defensively speaking, like in terms like defensive wrestling has always been terrible and has seemingly never improved again, Overeem and Tybura, both beat him by getting out from under him, getting on top of him and punching him out. That's, I mean, that's as simple as I can make it. Uh, They both use the most direct route to victory against Walt Harris. Uh, It never really improved. He went on great win streaks when he ran into people that weren't good enough to take advantage of that. He always came up against the wall when he ran into people who were like his, Matchup with Verdum years ago was one of the more egregious stylistic mismatches in modern (laughs) heavyweight history between two guys that were, you know, ranked as high as they were. And I don't think it's reasonable to expect that to have improved during the layoff. Like, even at heavyweight, 
most fighters don't pick up new skills and improve between the ages of 38 and 40. I'd be surprised if, if Harris has. So the question is, is this Harris, whether he's the same guy that was fighting Tybura and Volkov a couple years ago or a slightly diminished version thereof, is he enough to beat Josh Parisian? Uh, Parisian, I feel bad saying this because uh, he is, to all appearances, a super cool dude. Uh, you may remember, you know, my story about why he's always going to have a place in my heart. If not, I'm not going to repeat it here. But unfortunately, outside of that, he is one of the lower level guys in the UFC heavyweight division. And I say that in full knowledge of what that implies. Uh, he's a big guy. He's, he's huge. He's someone who comes in right around the heavyweight limit of 265 or 266 pounds and may even have to cut a little weight to get there. He's, he's a gigantic dude. Even though Harris is going to be taller and have a bigger wingspan, Parisian is probably going to be the heavier guy in the cage. And he's aggressive, comes forward and throws good volume. Like he'll throw plenty of jabs. He'll throw one twos. And in a heavyweight division where plenty of decently skilled fighters just throw away rounds by not throwing enough strikes, not establishing any offense. That's a good thing. Unfortunately, Parisian is slow, even by heavyweight standards. Uh, plotting is a good word to describe him. That's the one Keith always uses. Uh, slow feet, like he has, he has decent footwork. He's clearly been coached properly. He knows how to L-step. He knows, you know, how to move laterally. He just does it very slowly. He is a minus athlete, even by the standards of the division. His hands are slow. So, I mean, he's throwing his jab. He's throwing his right cross, but they're just coming out real slow. If he lands, uh, he does have good power. I mean, not Walt Harris power, but uh, good power. And he's willing to get creative. Uh, I was surprised he wasn't signed after his first uh, appearance on the Contender Series because he knocked out Greg Rabella with a spinning back fist. Uh, and in fact, he threw two or three spinning back fists in that fight. I remember marveling at the time that he did it without those cheesy Contender Series uh, fight kit shorts falling off of him. Anyway, uh, for Parisian to win this fight, he's going to have to do one of two things. Uh, well, he's either going to have to survive the speed and power deficit and reach deficit against Harris on the feet and just live dangerously there and try to either outstrike him and win rounds or actually hurt him. That sounds like rough sledding or he's going to need to take him down. And Parisian usually does come in with a solid game plan. He usually comes in clearly knowing what his opponent is good or bad at and tries to work around that. His main problem is that if plan A doesn't work, he doesn't always make, proper adjustments. Uh, but assuming that he's going to come into this fight, knowing that he should take Harris down, uh, it's a pretty clear, I mean, it, it's a pretty clear dichotomy. Either Parisian runs into something nasty on the way in, or he does manage to crash the pocket, get Harris off balance, trip him, get him to the ground. Uh, because again, Harris's takedown defense is bad that even Parisian's slow shot from the outside, unless he runs into a submarine uppercut or a flying knee or something, if he can just get one or both of Harris's legs and just lean into him, there's a good chance that Harris falls onto his butt and 
freeze and climbs right into half guard. Uh, and if he does, again, Harris has shown little, precious little ability to get back up from there. It's usually fight over if that happens, at least against Alistair Overeem, Martin Tybura, Fabrizio Verdum. But I think that's Parisian's best route to victory. And if this fight hits the ground, uh, my pick here is going to flip in a hurry. But for now, I am going to take Harris. I am concerned. Again, it's been two years. He wasn't looking great before then. But considering the change in level of competition, again, going from Martin Tybura to Josh Parisian, I think unless Harris is completely dilapidated physically, he's going to catch Parisian. Uh, Parisian will come forward. He's going to be throwing punches. Harris is going to come back with longer, faster, straighter punches. He's going to come back with big kicks to the legs and body, maybe flying knees or step-in knees. Uh, it's worth noting that his last win against Olenek, he knew that Olenek needed to get him down. Olenek knew that Olenek needed to get him down. And Harris absolutely demolished him. Uh, just caught him with a beautiful in intercepting knee uh, and put him to sleep. I don't know if that happens here, but I do think Harris is going to punish Parisian for trying to take him down. Or if Parisian elects to oblige him with a boxing match, he's going to punish him for not trying to take him down. Uh, give me Harris. I'm going to say he gets it done by first round knockout here, uh, but certainly Parisian by first round knockout on the ground would be my second most likely outcome. But for now, let's, let's go with the favorite here. Harris by round one KO and, uh, I have to imagine we'll be in for an emotional outpouring if and when that happens. Next up at UFC on ESPN 49, and at least as the card is constituted as of the beginning of fight week, the co-main event is a middleweight matchup between Albert Duraev and Junyong Park. Duraev, 34-year-old Russian, is 16-4 and overall. He is 2-1 since joining the UFC as a veteran of the fifth season of Dana White's Contender Series and a former middleweight champ in Absolute Championship Berkut, now known as Absolute Challenge Championship Akhmat. He is coming off a win. He took a split decision over uh, Chidi and Jokowani back in March at UFC on ESPN, Vera versus Sandhagen. Prior to that, uh, he was pummeled into a doctor stoppage between rounds two and three by Joaquin Buckley last June. Duraev will look to stay in the win column here against Park. The 32-year-old Korean is 16-5 and five overall. He is 6-2 and two in the UFC, and he is on a three-fight win streak. Uh, since his most recent loss, which was to Gregory Rodriguez almost two years ago, uh, he has... Uh, three consecutive wins over Eric Anders, Joseph Holmes, and Dennis Tululin. The most recent of those, the Tululin fight, was in uh, February at the Lewis versus Spivak fight night card. So he'll be looking to make it four in a row and uh, actually mint himself a contender in this division against uh, all previous expectations. And uh, he is actually the slight to moderate favorite to get that done. Park is minus 150 or so on most of your books. Duraev available around plus 130. Uh, Duraev is another of the fighters on this card that is about as much of a specialist as you're likely to see in a modern high-level 
international promotion. Uh, he is a grindy wrestler, and it all runs off of his wrestling. He's a willing striker. I mean, he knows all the techniques. He's willing to strike, uh, you know, but it's all just to get into range and get his opponent to the ground where he goes to work from top position. He's a heavy top position guy, uh, solid ground and pound. And the ground and pound itself is usually a means to an end, usually a means to soften up his opponent, get them to turn their back uh, where he can then, you know, get a brew naked choke, get a neck crank like he got on, on the contender series. It's worked fairly well so far. He's three fights into his UFC career. He has fought kickboxers who wanted to knock him out on the feet all three times, and he's only lost one of those. And what it's basically come down to is Roman Kopolov and Chidi and Jokowani were not able to keep Duraev off of them. They were not able to consistently get back up when Duraev took them down, and Buckley was. Uh, Duraev just outmatched Kopolov. It Turns out that Kopolov maybe wasn't all that great or maybe wasn't ready for prime time yet. But and Jokowani had been on a bit of a resurgence in the UFC. I mean, he that still is. I mean, he still is a surprising success story. Uh, but Duraev just managed to blunt him. I think that's the, the best word for it. Because it's not like he got him down early in all three rounds and racked up 12 minutes of of ground control time in a 15 minute fight or anything, but he got him down enough that Njokawani was reacting to the threat of the takedown, never really got his kicking game, uh, never really got his kicking game uh, uncoiled, you know, and out of first gear the way he likes to like Njokawani is, I mean, he's a veteran Muay Thai fighter. He has all the techniques, but in MMA, his nastiest work is done with his kicks and he just never really got out of first gear against Duraev. Buckley, on the other hand, despite being the smallest of the three, was just that fast, that explosive. And when Duraev took him down, he bounced right back up. Um, he swept him. I, I mean, Duraev got Buckley down in the second round. Buckley basically bridged and bucked like a, good high school wrestler flipped Duraev all the way over, took top position and beat the bejesus out of him. Uh, what will be interesting to see here is how Duraev looks against a fighter who is much closer to himself in approach than uh, any of the opponents he's faced so far. But Park is decidedly not a high flying kickboxer. His, Nicknamed the Iron Turtle. Very fitting. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Park has, like I said earlier, defied all expectations in becoming a fringe contender with upside in the middleweight division. But he's done it by going almost the opposite direction of Duraev, where Duraev was a pure wrestler who, you know, is, has worked to diversify uh, his game develop better striking to set up his wrestling park came to the UFC as kind of a nondescript medium power, low output counter striker, you know, maybe the least aggressive Korean fighter in the UFC in 20 years, but all of a sudden he just decided that he 
was going to start wrestling. And he's turned out to be very good at it, despite not being much uh, of an athlete and not being terribly big for the division, at least not in terms of height. Uh, he's strong, he's durable, and he's very persistent. He turns out he's a born grinder. Uh, once he realized he could win fights just by working persistently for takedowns, once he figured out that, hey, my first takedown attempt getting rejected is not a failure, it's an investment in attrition and future results, he's been a hard guy to beat ever since. Uh, in his entire UFC run, he's lost twice to Anthony Hernandez in his debut, and one, Anthony Hernandez may be a better fighter overall. He was definitely a better fighter uh, in 2019, and I think Anthony Hernandez is is very good and kind of underrated. And then he lost to Gregory Rodriguez, who, recent loss or two aside, uh, is still you know a top 15 quality middleweight. Aside from that, Park has ground out everybody else. That's going to make for an interesting matchup here just because it may not be the most exciting fight to watch. It is an indication of the problems with this card from an entertainment perspective that this fight that almost promises to be a three-round slog to watch is the co-main event. Yes, they're both talented fighters. Yes, the winner is at least a borderline top 15 fighter, if not better. But aside from that, oof, th this one could be rough sledding. Uh, neither guy really has a quick strike knockout power on the feet. And in either event, neither guy really wants to be on the, uh, on the feet if they don't have to be. And on the ground, they're both people who can finish opponents, but usually it takes some attrition. And if they get a quick finish on the ground, it's usually against someone that's not real good at taking care of themselves down there. The, your Dennis Chalulans uh, against each other, they're likely to kind of cancel out and neutralize a lot. I, I lean towards the slight favorite park here. He's just, uh, he's embraced his new role, his new identity as a middleweight grinder he, he is a better striker with probably more power than Duraev for whatever time they spend on the feet. If Park decides to revert to earlier form and just try to use wrestling in reverse and stay on the feet and just peck away at Duraev, I think he can probably do that. That would be a different kind of dreadful to watch, but I would expect Park to get the better of it. Or this could be another fight where, again, 75 or 80% of the fight takes place in physical contact with the fence or within that warning track. And we end up with a lot of kind of slow motion positional battles on the ground. This is a, not going to be one of those two cats in a bag uh, scramble fests. It's going to be one of those fights where whoever does secure a takedown is going to guard that top position like gold. And so we're going to end up with uh, eh, maybe a little bit of booing from the sparse crowd in the apex. Who knows? Uh, depending on who the ref is, maybe some warnings to work to keep busy and maybe some stand-ups. But regardless of whether where the fight takes place, I do favor Park here. Uh, give me Junyong Park to make it four wins in a row and, uh, you know, pick up the decision. 
With that, we come to the main event of UFC Vegas 77. It is a bantamweight matchup between former champ Holly Holm and rising contender Mayra Bueno Silva. Holm, the 41-year-old New Mexico native, is 15-6 and six overall. She is 8-6 and six in the UFC. Worth noting that she has bounced back and forth between 135 and 145 pounds. So while she's 8-6 and six overall in the UFC, she's 7-4 and four at Bantamweight. She is, of course, a former UFC Bantamweight champ, former featherweight title challenger. She is coming into this fight off of a win. She faced Yana Santos in March at UFC on ESPN, Vera versus Sandhagen, taking a unanimous decision. She will look to make it two in a row, and opposing her in that pursuit will be Bueno Silva. The 31-year-old Brazilian is 10-2-1 overall. She is 5-2-1 since joining the UFC out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. Piece of trivia that I always share when introducing one of her fights is that she is the very first fighter signed out of uh, the Brazil Contender Series. Uh, she is on a three-fight win streak. After debuting in the UFC and experiencing mixed results at flyweight, uh, she moved up to bantamweight, and she's had good results ever since. She's on a three-fight win streak overall. That would be a decision win over Wu Yanan, a quick submission of Stephanie Egger, and most recently, a second-round submission of Lena Landsberg in February at the Andrade versus Blanchfield fight night. Despite Silva's uh, win streak, despite Holmes' advancing age, Holm is the favorite here. She's minus 170. Bueno Silva out there around plus 140. Uh, it's a fascinating thing about Holly Holm. Obviously, she came to the UFC as a highly decorated boxer. Uh, opinions can differ about how much it meant to be a women's boxing champion in the early 2000s. But regardless of the level of competition, she came over as an undefeated former world champion in boxing, uh, like clearly an elite boxer by the standards of her division, her era, her gender. Uh, and now you can make a solid argument that Holmes boxing is her least impressive offensive weapon. It's it's wild. The The first thing that kind of made home stand out and made us think she might be something special is when she turned pro started fighting in New Mexico and started wiping people out with head kicks. Uh, it turns out that home being big, extremely athletic, especially at the time rangy. Uh, she had a whole arsenal of weapons that she was never allowed to use in the boxing ring and made up for lost time. She remained a, Good boxer and great kicker well into her prime. Very famously notched one of the biggest upsets in UFC title fight history, uh, wiping out Ronda Rousey with a head kick. Later, as she pushed into her mid and then into her late 30s, uh, she began really leveraging her physical strength, not just her athleticism, and, you know, became a very good wrestler and willing to use that wrestling when appropriate. Uh, you know, put on the takedown clinic on, on Megan Anderson at this point home in her last few fights, again, still a good boxer, a very good kicker whose volume kicking has definitely dried up a bit. 
a one of the better wrestlers in the division and an absolute brute in the clinch who wears on her opponents, nullifies their offense, and if given the opportunity, hurts them or takes them down uh, from the clinch. So, yeah, just great that one of the more decorated boxers ever to cross over uh, to mixed martial arts is now a boxer last. Just interesting uh, career arc for one of the greatest women ever to do it. Uh, bueno Silva is an interesting... I mean, she's she's an interesting uh, story in the UFC because she came in, again, you know, fighting at flyweight, and frankly, a lot of her losses at flyweight, she kind of got bullied by flyweights. Uh, not too much shame in getting bullied by Manon Fior. She's an absolute brute of a of a flyweight, maybe the biggest, strongest woman in the 125 pound division. But Marina Moroz was not. And she took down Bueno Silva at will in, in their fight. So th- that would seem to make Bueno Silva not the best candidate to move up to 135 pounds, where the women are even bigger and stronger. But she's grown into a 135-pound frame. Uh, she's gone from being the bullied to generally being the bully. Uh, just, I mean, she was always tall and had a frame that could carry more muscle. and. She's apparently put on some muscle and physical strength has not been an issue for her since moving up. Uh, it's it's a pretty remarkable transformation. Uh, in her most recent fight against Lena Landsberg. Now, Landsberg was over 40 years old and to put it mildly, has not aged into her 40s like Holm has. But Bueno Silva knew exactly what Landsberg wanted to do. Landsberg thrives in the clinch. She's the elbow queen for good reason. She knew that Landsberg was just going to come crashing forward with a couple of punches, try to clinch, run her to the fence, and then just maul with little knees and elbows. And Silva just flat out did not allow it. Uh, She abused Landsberg in the clinch in round one, just uh, shucked her off at will, reversed her against the fence, kind of overpowered her. And then in the second round, when Landsberg came charging forward, Bueno Silva went judo style, used Landsberg's forward momentum against her and just tossed her to the ground. And the fight ended, you know, uh, that round. So Bueno Silva, clearly uh, capable of, you know, running a good game plan and sticking to it. Uh, when she does engage on the feet, she's a solid boxer, she has good power. Uh, like the rest of her physical strength related attributes. She seems to have grown into solid bantamweight power from, you know, whatever power she had at flyweight. The problem here is that while Mayura Bueno Silva is on a three fight win streak, her, she's on a win streak doing things to people that nobody does to Holly Holm. And I have no reason to believe anyone's going to start this Saturday. Uh, the way that she tossed around Landsberg in the clinch, she's just not going to be able to do that with Holm. While Silva has grown into, uh, again, you know, a, a solid, at least, you know, average to, to slightly above average woman in terms of physical strength for the man and weight division, Holm might be the biggest, strongest woman 
in the 135 pound division and home in her most recent fight against Yana Santos. She's a big bantamweight. She's very strong. She can't get through a fight without the UFC booth commenting on her back muscles and frankly, with good reason. And Holm slammed her all over the place. Hell, Holm gave her a this is Sparta front kick to the chest that knocked her halfway across the cage like a cartoon character. Holm's strength advantages against one of the stronger women in the division were on display. Against all expectations, Holm really still seems to be fighting just fine. I mean, she's won three of her last four fights, and the one that she lost to Ketlin Vieira last May, the vast majority of people scored that for Holm, myself included. So you can argue that Holm should be on a four-fight win streak now as uh, she nears her 42nd birthday. And while she's not her prime self in terms of athleticism, she has done as good a job of adjusting to her aging body as just about anyone I can think of uh, in, in MMA right now. I, maybe Andre Arlovsky would be uh, one that I could think of that has retooled his skills and his approach to fighting as he has slowed down and aged. And home and home was right up there. Uh, so, is Bueno Silva going to bully home in the clinch? Probably not. Uh, is she going to armbar her, like just catch her in an armbar, like she did Stephanie Egger? I find it highly unlikely. Uh, this looks like another Holly Holm fight waiting to happen. This one has fifty forty five home written all over it. I expect that Silva will not be able to make much headway against Holm. I think just most of the things she's going to try aren't going to work. And it's going to make for a pretty one-sided fight. And it's going to make for a pretty dry fight. Uh, The downside of Holm's remarkable longevity, her self-reinvention in multiple stages over the years, is that the current version of Holly Holm is not terribly exciting to watch. She just, she thrives on neutralizing her opponent's offense and landing enough of her own to win rounds. And that's about it. Uh, so like I say, this one's probably got 50, 45 home written all over it. Uh, I'm pretty sure this one's going the distance. If home appears to have aged overnight, if Silva has added even more new wrinkles to her game, if she shows up physically transformed and can suddenly match uh, power with home, we have a different fight on our hands, but I mean, I'm, I'm not picking that until I see it. The versions of these uh, two women are, are pretty, I mean, they're pretty known quantities here home by decision. Uh, and with Amanda Nunes out of the picture, home might be as close as she's been to a Bantamweight title shot since she lost that title. So uh, exciting times for her, if for nobody else. That is it. The UFC on ESPN 49 preview, courtesy of the Sherdog Radio Network. If this is your first time watching one of uh, these previews, first of all, thank you. Second of all, apologies. Normally I have a co-host. It's usually Keith Schillen. Uh, It's normally a much livelier affair than me just uh, quacking into the void, staring cross-eyed into my, uh, my camera here by myself. Please do like, subscribe, 
leave a comment. Uh, I do man that comment section. So I'd love to hear your take on these fights. If you think any of my predictions are way off, let me know. But most importantly, join us on the recap. We are live on the SureDog YouTube page, usually about 15 minutes after the main event. Uh, Keith will be back with me this Saturday. He takes the helm. We'll break down all of these fights, starting from the main event all the way back to the first prelim. We'll talk about what was good, what was bad, what was surprising, what was controversial. There's always something. We'll talk about what's next for some of the notable winners as well as losers. And we'll be talking with you. The live chat on the YouTube video is open that whole time. So we are taking your questions, your comments, and your hot takes in real time. We have a growing community of friends that hang out with us after the fights, and we would love for you to be part of it. Between now and then, thank you once again for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week, and by all means, enjoy these fights.